Ezra 8, beginning in verse 1. These are the heads of their fathers' houses, and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes the king. Of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom. Of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel. Of the sons of David, Hattush. Of the sons of Shechaniah, who was of the sons of Parosh, Zechariah, with whom were registered 150 men. Of the sons of Pehath-Moab, Aliahoinai, the son of Zerahiah, and with him 200 men. Of the sons of Zatu, Shechaniah, the son of Jehaziel, and with him 300 men. Of the sons of Adin, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 men. Of the sons of Elam, Jeshiah, the son of Athaliah, and with him 70 men. Of the sons of Shephatiah, Zebediah, the son of Michael, and with him 80 men. Of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehiel, and with him 218 men. Of the sons of Bani, Shelomith, the son of Josephiah, and with him 160 men. Of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him 28 men. Of the sons of Asgad, Johanan, the son of Hakatan, and with him 110 men. Of the sons of Adonikam, those who came later, their names being Eliphelet, Jewel, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 men. Of the sons of Bigvi, Uthai, and Zechar, and with them 70 men. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jarib, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyarib and Elnathan, who were men of insight, and sent them to Ido, the leading man at the place Kasaphia, telling them what to say to Ido and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Kasaphia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mahli, the son of Levi, son of Israel, named Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, and with, with his kinsmen and their sons, 20 besides 220 of the temple servants whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name, though not here, thankfully. <laughs> then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests, Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them, and I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hand 650 talents of silver, and silver vessels worth 200 talents, and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 darics, and two vessels of fine, bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of the Lord." So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. 
Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. And with them were the Levites, Josabad, the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, the son of Binui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people and the house of God. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. How many of you have ever had a job where you had no idea what you were doing? How many of you are in that job currently? No, I'm kidding. Just put your hands up. I like to think, maybe it's just me, uh, but I like to think that most of us have had jobs like that and that I'm not alone. I I think every job is like that to some extent because there are some things that you can only really learn if you're on the job. Um, I said last week that seminary didn't really prepare me for a lot of the elements of day-to-day ministry. That's true. It is also true that my political science degree from Penn State didn't really prepare me for, well, anything. And it's true in life, not just in jobs, like nothing prepares you for marriage, nothing prepares you for parenting, like there's just things like that. Reading books, going to school, watching YouTube videos, like that only teaches you so much. Uh, And there's a big difference, as it turns out, between theory and practice. And, you know, that becomes very clear usually on your first day on the job. That's what typically proves it for you. And, you know, last week we finally met Ezra, and we know because he keeps telling us that he is a a brilliant student of the law, of God's word. He made that very clear. And we know that he has been called to lead this new wave of migrants back to Jerusalem. Uh, He's been given a very important job, but we haven't actually seen him in action yet. Mostly it was we were reading this letter from the king and all of these blessings that have been handed to Ezra. Uh, But he has this very important job, and his larger mission, his, his goal, is to go and teach God's people. That's what he wants to do. That's what he's trained for. That's what he's been studying for. That's what he's really prepared to do. But his first actual day on the job is to be a delivery man. Ezra has to deliver a huge treasure all the way from Babylon to Jerusalem. And I'm betting that they didn't teach him about this in seminary. He's suddenly now, he's like a Brink security truck. And this is going to require like a different level of leadership. And we're going to look at this because to lose this treasure is obviously not a good thing, right? Uh, All of Ezra's study and prep is going to be kind of irrelevant if he fails in this first fundamental task. The whole mission kind of hinges on a successful delivery here. 
And so I want to look at Ezra's leadership style because it's interesting, and he makes many good and wise leadership decisions, and at least one that I found kind of questionable, which we'll talk about in a bit. But the main thing, the main question is, will the treasure get there? Now, the chapter begins with an account of all these heads of houses who decided to follow Ezra back to Jerusalem. And you'll remember that the king had said that any Jew who wanted to go had his blessing. And so in the first 14 verses, we get an exact account of which households came along. I'm not going to go over the names in detail. You'll be glad to know, uh, mostly because I don't know anything about them. Um, but we gather from verse 13 that they all kind of came in waves. It says some came later. So like, you know, it took a couple days for everybody to gather up here. And then you get another list of names in the following section, verses 15 to 20. But if, if you kind of add up in verses 1 to 14, there's like over 1,500 men at the start. And then you get another like 260-ish in the next chunk. And that's the grand total, but that doesn't mention the women and children. You know, so if you include all of that, I'm guessing this goes from being about 1,800 people, like to, like, I mean, they didn't know birth control in these days, and big families were blessings in the Jewish world here. So we're talking probably anywhere between, I'm guessing, 10 and 40,000 people in this entourage. It's huge, right? A huge migration that Ezra is leading. And he is not a politician by trade, nor is he a warrior. He's a lawyer, a theology nerd. This is what we were seeing last week. And yet all these people, thousands of them making a split-second decision to move permanently to Jerusalem, and they're following a seminary student. It's kind of crazy. But there's something fitting about including these lists of households. This is God honoring their decision to forsake the big city and come join this revival that's going on in Jerusalem. Uh, even though they weren't the first ones to sign up. I mean, it's been going on there at this point for a couple of decades, you know, but God still receives them coming late. It's actually, I think it's a picture of the gospel, even right there, because it reminds me of Jesus's parable about the laborers in the field and the ones who come late receive the same wages. These households similarly are honored in this passage for coming, even though they're in the last, you know, the latter wave. I, and I particularly like what it says in verse 20. It says that these were all mentioned by name. And again, I'm glad I didn't have to read any more Hebrew names this morning. Uh, but Ezra wants you to know, and God wants you to know, that these aren't just numbers. Each individual was recognized for making this bold step in faith of joining Ezra on this mission to reestablish true worship in Jerusalem. But in the middle of this list of names, we get a few interesting insights about Ezra's leadership style. And, and this appears mostly in that second chunk, in that second paragraph. And again, this is a leadership. This is, leadership recognizes and believes that God's good hand is on him. It makes a difference to the kind of decisions that you make. And we learn that part of godly leadership means assembling a team. That's what Ezra starts with. This is not going to be the Ezra show. He's not going there on his own as a missionary often would do. Uh, and, and really, this kind of work, that's never been God's way. If, if you go back to Moses, one of the most important leadership decisions that he ever made was when he took his father-in-law's advice and appointed 72 people to help him because he was exhausted. That was an important decision he made. Likewise, Jesus, echoing that story, he appoints 72 men to go preach the gospel in the villages. Because in his humanity, Jesus can't be everywhere. 
And God, not out of need, but just out of his good pleasure, chooses to delegate his authority and spread the message using common people. So Ezra assembles a team. Uh, he gathers this first group by the river. We'll call them the A-team. Uh, but in verse 15, he realizes upon further inspection, he looks around and he's like, there's no Levites in the group. Now, I read that, and in one sense, it seems like, well, that shouldn't be that big of a deal, not because Levites aren't important or critical to the daily operations of the temple, but there are already Levites in Jerusalem. I assume Ezra knows that. Uh, we, we know all the way back in chapter 1, there were Levites in the original migration decades ago with Sheshbazar. And yet Ezra puts the whole project on pause because he has no Levites in this entourage. And maybe it makes sense when you consider that Ezra himself is a Levite. What he's realizing in verse 15 is that none of his kinsmen showed up when the invite went out. And I think Ezra finds that embarrassing. Thousands of people here committing themselves have assembled at the riverside with their families and they're going back to establish proper worship and to, to be with the rest of their people and none of his clan bothered to show. And I think that's unacceptable to him. Uh, and it's not just a question of honor, it's a spiritual matter because to not go back to Jerusalem is to actively choose to stay in Persia and inevitably over time assimilate over the future decades into the Persian culture. It is to lose touch with the God that you claim to love. Ezra knows this. And that's a danger even when you live close to the temple. I mean, we've seen already, and we're going to see more of this in the coming weeks. And, and, and to choose to be distant from a house of worship, like, that's folly. If we think just in recent years, how many people do we know that have essentially totally given up on going to church since COVID? Is that a positive choice? Good for their health? And it's not that attendance at worship saves you, but how on earth are you supposed to grow in your faith if you never gather with the saints? And that's what's concerning Ezra regarding his kinsmen. He doesn't want them left behind. And a good leader doesn't leave men behind. So in verse 16, he assembles a committee to go find a few Levites. He says he sends for this, this list of names. I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerry, Balnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, Meshulam, leading men, and for Joyarib and Elnathan, who were men of insight. And I sent them to Iddo, the leading man at the place Kasaphia, telling them what to say to Iddo and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Kasaphia, namely, to send us ministers for the house of our God. So some of these guys are described as leading men. The Hebrew literally is heads, i.e. basically chiefs. But it's interesting that he grabs two other guys who are men of insight. Um, this is just a side note, but it's worth noting because not every man of insight has a position of authority. Uh, that's just as true today, and it's the same reason why, even in our church, if we form a committee to do something or study something, we don't just put elders on there, right? Not, not every man or woman of insight is an elder. So Ezra sends this committee of 11 guys, and he sends them to a guy named Edo. And we don't learn much about Edo here, but Bible scholars seem to think that this place, Kasaphia, is probably a sort of sanctuary, a Jewish religious center for the exiles in Persia. And Ezra, being wise, delegates a task to a committee, like a good Presbyterian, because 
he can't do everything. He can't stay here and rally the troops and go to Casaphia, so he sends a committee. And verse 17 says he didn't just send them, he taught them exactly what to say. He trains the committee on how exactly to go recruit people. And it works. Verse 18 and following, And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion, of the sons of Mahli, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen. 18. Also Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah of the sons of Merari, and with his kinsmen and their sons, 20 besides 220 of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. These were all mentioned by name. So Ezra says, send us ministers. And because God's good hand is on this thing, they are delivered. And the same Levites who had heard this invitation, presumably once and ignored it, suddenly show up. We were talking this morning uh, uh, just a little bit ago about, a, a well, Mark Fodale used to go to this church, was giving the story of how he came to faith at Presbytery last week and talking about how it, it took uh, a student from the campus ministry knocking on his door every week for like six weeks or something like that before he finally said, if, if I go, will you leave me alone? You know? And, and that's how he came to know the Lord. Uh, so it's interesting. Sometimes you need a second invitation. Sometimes you need six. Uh, but some Levites finally show up here with, uh, with a little more cajoling from this committee. And so leadership in the kingdom of God sometimes requires recruiting, and sometimes one invitation is not enough. And um, it is good to do things with a team here. And, and this is why this principle of recruiting more people. This is why pastors are always looking for somebody to fulfill the pulpit and make various programs happen. It's not just because we're lazy. It's because that's how the kingdom functions. Uh, God is in control and it's his hand at work, but his hands work by raising up more leaders of fallen people. I don't get it, but that doesn't really matter. That's what he chooses to do. God chooses to grow his kingdom. He chooses to orchestrate revival through ordinary men and women. That's how he rolls. And I think that's why Jesus didn't stay on earth. He chooses instead to govern and grow and revive his church by means of his Holy Spirit working through his word in otherwise incompetent and cowardly men and women. Praise God. Who else could make such a crazy scheme work? Now, once Ezra has assembled his team, what does he do next? He declares a fast and with reason. He says, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. I've admitted this before. Fasting is not one of my favorite things. I guess fasting is not meant to be fun. Uh, I don't observe Lent because I don't look for like extra reasons to fast, but I, I will admit that I am more likely to fast when I am severely troubled or distracted. Fasting comes naturally when you are worried because you tend to lose your appetite anyway. And the threat of you and your family being killed on a road trip has a way of focusing the mind. Now, I've been on a few road trips over the years, and we do pray before we hit the road. We always do. But I don't have that kind of terror of what might happen driving to Florida or Maine or whatever. This is a little bit different. 
the kind of threats they're facing are tremendously clarifying. The Jews had a lot of enemies in Persia. Not the king at this point, obviously, but others. And I chose not to take a detour because I didn't want it to be a big distraction, but I, I didn't take us through the book of Esther, but I thought about it because many scholars believe that Ahasuerus, Esther's husband, is actually the same as Artaxerxes, who wrote this letter, sending Ezra back to Jerusalem. We don't know for absolute certain that that's the case. There's a lot of confusion about the Persian king's names, but if it's true, it explains a lot. Uh, it, it would explain why the king is suddenly so eager to help Ezra out, it's because his queen is Jewish. And it also explains why this would be a particularly dangerous time for a bunch of Jews to be traveling around the empire unprotected. Because if you know the story, you know that there is a standing order for the Jews to be slaughtered. The king had signed off on Haman's plot. He had done so in ignorance. And later when he discovered what was going on, he said he couldn't undo his own command. So instead, the best he could do was to send an additional order that the Jews should prepare to defend themselves. It's a great story if you're really into the Second Amendment. <laughs> but if Ezra is traveling in that time period, and if Haman's orders to kill the Jews, and you know, if those orders are still hanging around in every town like wanted posters in the Old West, that's a problem. Because news spreads slowly. If the king has changed his mind and told you guys to arm yourselves, that doesn't spread as fast as, like, you know, the very eager news of, like, hey, go kill these guys and take their money. And yes, the king had said now, yes, the Jews can defend themselves. That's great. But if there's a standing order that gives you carte blanche to attack and kill Jews and steal their property, that's a very strong incentive for murderous cutthroats to go cutthroats. That's what they do. And defending yourself on unlit highways is considerably more difficult. There's a reason we sleep at night inside with our doors locked, right? It is easier to defend your home than to defend a tent. When you are traveling, you are at risk of ambush because people can hide just around the bend. There is no such thing as home turf because you're traveling constantly. You don't know the land. You don't know where to hide. You don't know where they are hiding. And you don't always have the high ground. Sometimes you're in a valley because you're always moving. And when you travel with women and children, the job gets even harder because it slows everything down. This is a trip that you could make in a long day driving at this point. This is, that's today. Back then, lugging wagons and all your earthly possessions and the kids. Women need to rest more. Some are probably pregnant, right? Kids wander off and get lost. They start playing with a snake. They get bit. We got to pause for a day. And because the women and the children need defending and guns haven't been invented yet, there's no great equalizer. All the combat that they could possibly anticipate is going to be hand-to-hand -hand tests of brute strength. So in the minds of the Jewish men, the stakes are that much higher. Everything you have is at risk because your family's here. You can't just run. And aside from that, they're a walking gold mine. Traveling at night is always dangerous, but it's all the more so if you're carrying a lot of cash. In my previous life, when I worked at the deli, 
I can say this now because I'm not there anymore, but I got paid in cash every week. And I left late on Saturday night after cleaning. It was usually after midnight, sometimes one o'clock in the morning. And where I worked was a nice neighborhood, but some of the places I drove through were not. And honestly, my own neighborhood wasn't exactly Mayberry. And so when I got home and had to park and there wasn't a spot out front and I'm down the block and maybe around the corner down at the shady little uh, uh, open air drug market that was the, uh, the park down at the end of the block, uh, I was a little bit nervous walking back to the house because you think to yourself like eventually people might figure out my rhythm. They might take a chance on the guy coming home that late. It's dark, he's alone, he doesn't look that tough, let's be honest. He's probably coming home from work, why else would he be here at this weird hour? And my only saving grace was that no one knew for sure if I was worth robbing, and if anyone tried, it would be a gamble. The Jews here don't have that benefit. They have been gifted by the king and his counselors, piles of cash, gold, silver, etc. And everyone knows it because it was a public decree. You might as well hang a neon sign on this operation saying, rob me. It's, yeah, like a Brink security truck, but without armor. This, is, this would not exactly require like an Ocean's Eleven style heist. These guys will be on the road moving slow as molasses because of the women and kids and with all the earthly possessions in tow, and they are a prize worth taking. The jackpot of jackpots. No highway patrol, no street lamps, no emergency phones, and besides that, no matter what happens, because of Haman's orders before, even if it gets caught and reported, there will be no prosecution. So it's a little like being in Philly today. Now, knowing all that, some protection would probably be nice, you would think. If only someone had the resources and was willing to offer to send an armed escort, well, that would be really nice, wouldn't it? Like, if only they had some connections with somebody powerful. Oh, wait, the king himself. Verse 21, again, uh, he proclaims this fast. We're going to humble ourselves before God to seek safe journey for ourselves and our children. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Oh. Artaxerxes is not an idiot. And it sounds to me like he was fully aware that this was risky, and it sounds to me like he probably offered an escort in the first place. And it sounds to me like Ezra was very quick to turn it down. And now, looking at this massive camp, he can't help but wonder, was that a mistake? But he's ashamed to ask for help at this point. Why? Because he had already boasted to the king about God's good hand. Ezra, when graciously given all these good things by the king, had proceeded to glorify God, not the king. Not just privately, he does this to the king's face. He had gotten a little bit preachy. 
a little spicy. Our God, O King, has got this thing. If we seek him, his hand will guide and protect. Those who forsake him are under wrath. In other words, we don't need your help. That doesn't seem like the most courteous type of speech, does it? Especially when the king kind of just did you a solid, didn't he? But that's apparently what Ezra said. And now, a few days later, on the banks of the Ahava River, surrounded by the men, women, and children, and lots of money, Ezra might be having second thoughts. But as he says, he already kind of talked big on God, and it's too late to go back and ask for help. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever done such a thing, like somebody said, hey, you need help? Nah, I got it. Sure, yeah, no problem. Every husband in this room should feel convicted at this point. <laughs> I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but seriously, we do this a lot, don't we? Usually it's lower stakes, but still. And usually we kind of quietly regret it. But darned if we're going to go back and admit we need help, right? I mean, that's worse than asking for directions. So when I read the first part of this chapter, I thought, well, Ezra's a great model of leadership. It's very godly and consistent with the other scriptures. He assembles a team. He, he recruits people. He reviews his people. He knows who they are. He knows who's missing. He recruits replacements. He delegates well. He trains them what to do. That's pretty solid. And then I get here, and a piece of me says, what in the world is he thinking? How is this responsible? It's one thing to speak with confidence, but let's be realistic. You're a walking target, and you're putting not just yourself, it's the entire group is now at risk. And it's the first time I thought maybe Ezra's leadership is a little questionable. But I don't think that he was ashamed to ask for the same reasons I often am. When I don't want help, it's because my honor is at stake. I don't want to look weak, even though I am. So when I refuse help, it's because of my pride. But Ezra did not boast about what he could do or what God's people would do. He boasted in God's hand. God's honor is at stake. And what's more, Ezra does not say to the king that God would definitely save them. What exactly does he say? He says that the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. There's a conditional statement. God's good hand is on those who seek him. That doesn't mean that God's hand can be earned. What it means is that those who seek him find him and he does not forsake them. In other words, God won't be to blame even if these things do go wrong. If we fail, it will fail only because we forsake, forsook him. If the mission fails, it'll be because we didn't seek his face. If the mission fails, it'll be because we tried to do it on our own strength. If the mission fails, it'll be because we forgot whose hand was leading this thing. It's very similar to what Paul's talking about in Galatians 3 when he asks them, why are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you going to now end in the flesh? Ezra's boast before the king was not that they could do no wrong. His boast was that God is faithful to those who seek him. And so that's what they do. They pause to seek him. That's why Ezra calls a fast and tells the people not to get revved up. He tells them, humble yourselves. They are seeking God and they are confident that they will find him. The mission will only succeed if they seek him first. And so that is what they do. It says, so we fasted and implored our God for this and... He listened to our entreaty. 
you know, on, on practical terms, fasting before you travel is not always the normal way to go. Our stop on virtually every road trip, our first stop is always Wawa, the nearest one, preferably. Why? So the kids don't gripe about how hungry they are while we're driving. Moving is hard work. You would need nourishment. But Ezra declares a fast in preparation for this thing because they need to seek God's face. They need his good hand more than they need protein. And they didn't just skip some meals. Ezra says they implored our God. Fasting and prayer always go together. Fasting on its own is fine as a self-discipline thing, but the main biblical purpose for fasting is to help you focus your prayers, and that's what Ezra wants here. He is leading the people back to the source of the revival, and that's biblical leadership. The same thing applies today in the church. If your elders are not constantly pointing you back to Christ, what good are we? If we make this about ourselves, we will fail and we will deserve to. Revival only works if we are seeking God and not just what we want, and if we are leading our people to do likewise. So it's not about Ezra. It's not about teamwork and what they can achieve if they just put their heads together. The heart of biblical leadership is pointing people back to God, and God listens. He hears their prayers, and they are delivered safely back to Jerusalem. I'm not going to spend a ton of time in the remaining verses. I want to just point out one thing. Because we read in here that along with fasting and prayer, Ezra takes a very practical step of appointing the Levites as security. These are the same Levites he just recruited. Uh, money, security is a good and practical thing. I know we're a little sensitive on that subject after the events of the last year. Uh, but the treasure that we're talking about here is described in some detail in verses 26 and 27. And I tried to do the math last night. This is the numbers on this thing. There are more than 70,000 pounds of gold and silver here. More than 35 tons. That's a lot of moolah. But what does Ezra say to these guys as he's appointing them? In verse 28 and 29. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord, and the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem within the chambers of the house of the Lord. That's his charge. You know what strikes me in that charge? It's the first thing that Ezra says. Ezra doesn't start by telling them about the gold and the silver. He doesn't say, hey, fellas, this stuff is like really valuable. So don't screw this up. No. He begins by telling them who they are. He tells them first what they most need to hear. You are holy to the Lord. The gold belongs to God, yes, but more importantly, you belong to him. You are holy. You are set apart. You are part of the treasure. I 
I needed to hear this last night because I was struggling, as I do so many weeks with this passage, and I was despairing over how do I even tie all these thoughts together about what this chapter has to say about the gospel. And I wondered for the umpteenth time, like, why am I entrusted with this task every week? Why am I a pastor? I'm not a good student like Ezra was. I'm not a great natural leader. Why would God entrust this living and holy word, this treasure, to me? And the only reason I can think of is that I, too, am his treasure. Because Jesus purchased me on Calvary, and I belong to him. And so he entrusts his treasure even to a schlub like me, because in Christ I am set apart. I'm holy. And beloved, that is true for you as well. It reminded me of the Stuart Townsend hymn, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. That's not limited to Levites and pastors. Peter says, that we are now a kingdom of priests. If you are in Christ, if he is your savior, then you too are holy, not through your own merits, but because Jesus died to make you so. The treasure is in jars of clay, but he died for the jars. You belong to him, and he will protect his investment. And if you look again at the sort of towards the end here, does do they get there? <laughs> Beginning in Verse 30, the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. Ezra does a lot right here. He recruits, he fasts, he prays, he teaches them to humble themselves. But I think maybe the best thing he does is he reminds his people who they are, that they are holy unto him, that they are part of God's treasure. And God will defend his treasure. Once again, his hand will do it all. He provides the ministers, he provides the boldness and the courage before the king, and he delivers the treasure from the hand of the enemy. By his hand, God's people arrive safe and sound. The treasure gets there, all of it, because his people sought him and his hand was on them for good, and because they themselves were part of the treasure. And that was a good word for me last night. I needed Ezra's pep talk. But we know the rest of the story. God takes unholy people and makes them holy in Christ. He makes wretches his treasure. And he will defend his treasure. That's good news. And I needed the reminder. Maybe you do too. And I thought about how does this apply to us as a church? And I thought for the same reason it applies to me. This is a story about a very risky mission. And we likewise have a risky mission as a church. Our task is to deliver the treasure of the gospel to our city. And that can be dangerous and frustrating and scary. It's not a risk-free enterprise. But in the spirit of Ezra, I will say, do not be afraid because it's his gospel. It's his treasure. And he will defend it. 
So seek his face and humble yourself before the throne of grace and pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into his harvest. And most of all, remember who you are in Christ. You are holy, you are redeemed, and you are his treasure. And his hand is on you for good. And he will defend his treasure and he will not let the enemy snatch it out of his hand. And that's good news. So let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you so much again for your word. We thank you for raising up Ezra to lead your people in that day. But Lord, we thank you not because it was Ezra's doing ultimately, Lord. We thank you that your hand was orchestrating these things. And we thank you that you take this ragtag bunch of, including these Levites, these latecomers, and you call them holy. The treasure that you came to die for is your people. And Lord, I think of all this gold, this impressive quantity of gold, and it's all gone now. We don't know where any of it is. Yet we will know these men who get named here, Lord, and even the ones who didn't get named, we will know them one day in glory because you did preserve your treasure and you still have and you still will do and you still will. So we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the lessons of this chapter and pray that you would encourage us this week in this knowledge. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom.